We do what we do, say what we say, and feel what we feel because we want what we want. And we want what we want because we believe what we believe about God, His Word, and ourselves. But how do we deepen our belief in God? Believe it or not, you can't believe what you don't know. Therefore, the only way to truly deepen our worship of God is to deepen our knowledge, understanding, and subsequent trust of God. So we must continually remind ourselves that our God is always worth knowing, understanding, and celebrating. The one true God of the universe has existed since eternity past in ultimate perfection. He spoke the cosmos into existence for his soul, honor, and glory. He moved heaven and earth to redeem mankind, even though we have nothing to offer him. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. I'm your host, A.M. Brucer, and this is the Celebration of God. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here with you. Now, if you're just joining us or you haven't heard every part of this series in order, I'm going to suggest you stop and make sure you've heard all the others before listening today. Joining us today would be akin to reading the last chapter of a Christian living book and thinking you're all set to break all of your bad habits, build valuable relationships, and experience never-ending spiritual success. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't even happen had you read the whole book, but it definitely won't happen reading only the last part. Still, I am glad you joined us. My name is Aaron Michael Brewster. My family has been living in the United States of America for over 400 years. I know I don't sound that old. Well, actually, we came over on the Mayflower. That's right, I'm a Pilgrim descendant, and I want to share with you one of the misconceptions about why the Pilgrims came here. Most people would say that they were escaping England to pursue religious liberty. And yes, that's why they left England, but that's not why they went to America. When the Pilgrims left England, they actually went straight to Holland. Holland offered so much religious liberty that the Pilgrims could worship God exactly how he wanted them to worship him. However, after living there for about a decade, the pilgrims realized what was happening to their people. Back in England, they were persecuted for their beliefs, and that kind of persecution has a purging effect on a body of believers. But with the lack of persecution in Holland and the increased influence of secular thinking, many of the pilgrims, and to a greater degree their children, were giving in to the temptation of their secular neighbors and were walking away from the scriptures. So the pilgrims hazarded the open ocean and life in an undeveloped country because they realized that in order to have the best chances of being strong disciples of Christ, they needed to remove themselves from the constant negative influences of the world. And so, though over 500 pilgrims fled from England, fewer than 40 traveled to the New World. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you are surrounded by sinful influences that you need to sign up to be the first colonists of Mars— but I am re-emphasizing the fact that disciples of Christ must guard their hearts because the days are evil. We need to carefully manage our influences. We need to exhibit a stronger gravitational pull on the world than it exhibits on us. We will not grow in our worship of God if we start worshiping the way the world does for the reasons the world does. So how far are you willing to go to live a pure, undefiled life for God? How far are you willing to go to make sure your fellow disciples live a pure, undefiled life for God? Well, if you're willing to do whatever it takes to grow your worship, then let's dive into today's discussion. And don't forget that other study aids, episode notes, and the like are linked in today's description. 
Now, last time we discussed that belief is not the same as knowledge. In fact, misunderstandings in three key areas have caused much confusion when it comes to the subject of faith in Christianity. One of those key areas is the fact that some things in life just require knowledge, but many more require knowledge and faith. Not understanding the unique mix and distinctions can get us into a lot of trouble. The second key area concerning belief is that it requires an object about which we know something, and yet this concept is actually dissimilar from knowing something, you know, quote unquote. And the third key area is that there are three kinds of faith. There's dead faith, living faith, and didactic faith. Well, understanding all of these concepts will equip us to grow in truth and love. It's what we need. We need to understand them all. So today I want to start by addressing one objection I encounter from time to time as I teach this material. Some people suggest that, biblically speaking, faith can't be the merest Christianity. They cite passages that they think undermine the point I'm trying to make that belief is the most seminal reason we do what we do. Here's the objection I've heard from time to time. After unfolding the fact that faith, belief, and trust are the most seminal components of our relationship with God, some people have argued that love is actually the most basic of these Christian virtues. They say this because 1 Corinthians 13, 13 reads, quote, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, unquote. Now, obviously, we need to understand what God is saying here. Otherwise, uh, we're going to come to some huge misconceptions. Paul has just finished unfolding the most beautiful and detailed picture of biblical love, and he ends by telling us that faith, hope, and love are the three most important parts of the Christian life. But then he tells us that love is the greatest of the three. So that kind of sounds like it might undo everything I've claimed over the past two episodes. But here's what's going on. First, it's important to note that all three of those character traits are dependent on the others. You cannot possess one of them without the other two being present. You won't trust God if you don't love him. And you won't hope in something you don't believe will happen. You won't love God if you don't believe in him. And our hope partially motivates our love. So we need to see that ultimately faith is required to have genuine love and hope. We'll never love God on this side of eternity without faith. Second, the nature of faith and hope demand that they will one day cease to exist. In the future, when Christ returns, we'll no longer have any need for hope or faith. Both of them will be done away with and when we see God face to face. Why is that? Well, hope will disappear because I will finally have received that for which I hoped. And faith too will no longer be necessary because my faith will become sight. I will experientially know for certain it all to be true and faith will become obsolete. But love for my great God will last for all the the rest of eternity. Now, love is not the greatest because it's more important than faith or more seminal than faith. We know that love is a choice, which is an action that's motivated by desire that grows out of our faith in God. As I already mentioned, we won't love God if we don't believe he exists. We won't love others the way we should if we don't believe that God wants us to. So the reason love is considered the greatest virtue is that love will last forever, even when faith is no longer necessary. Love is eternal, but faith is temporal. But since we are all currently living in a pre-eternal state, faith is extremely important and foundational to everything we say and do, including the way we love. All right, now let's move on to our discussion about the absolutely vital nature of learning, understanding, and trusting as we seek to grow our faith. 
I actually want to discuss the importance of knowledge as it applies to our faith and our worship. Now, that may sound contradictory considering what I've said about belief and knowledge being different things and how belief is foundational to everything that we do and our knowledge doesn't really affect it and blah, 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 but it is not contradictory. That's not what I'm saying at all. So here we go. Knowledge is to belief what dirt is to tree roots. They're not the same thing at all, obviously, but the roots won't be able to soak up nutrients or water without being in contact with the dirt. If a tree is ripped out of the ground, it won't matter how much sunlight it gets, the roots will wither and the tree is going to die. So in our tree metaphor, we said that the roots of our trees are our belief. We do what we do, say what we say, and feel what we feel. That's our fruit, because we want what we want. Our desires can be compared to the trunk of our tree. But we want what we want because we believe what we believe about God, his word, and ourselves. Our faith is the very root system of our lives, but the soil around those roots represent the knowledge we have about God, his word, and ourselves. So how does this affect our answer to the question, why do we believe what we believe? We don't believe what we believe because we know what we know. We can't say that. We can know things and not believe them. We do that all of the time. Therefore, knowing something isn't automatically going to mean that I believe it. We believe what we believe simply because we choose to trust that what we know is true. So why do we believe what we believe? Well, we believe what we believe because we choose to believe it. That's it. Of course, obviously, God gives us the faith we need. However, that doesn't mean that what we know isn't important. Now, unlike the roots of a real tree, which are programmed by God to soak up the available nutrients and water, we actually choose how to respond to the truth we encounter. Our roots have the ability to reject the nutrients of God's truth. We can call him a liar. We can believe we know best, and subsequently we can desire our own way and therefore act accordingly. So faith is a choice that's not dependent upon anything but the grace of God and our will. So if my roots are covered by God's truth, I can choose to accept or reject that truth. But what if our roots are not in contact with the soil at all? Well, we wouldn't be able to soak up the nutrients no matter what. We couldn't choose to believe the truth about God because we would be completely ignorant of the information, and so we would choose to not believe it, though it wouldn't necessarily be a conscious choice. It would just be the fact that we would believe other things as a substitute to what God says, because we can't believe what we don't know. So picture this. Romans 1 tells us God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse when it comes to believing that there is a higher power. And Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We know that God has worked into his creation something we call general revelation. Back in Romans 1, we're told that a man has to fight his natural understanding of God through general revelation in order to claim that God doesn't exist. But men do just that all of the time. And of course, they receive the consequences of their self-worship. So in a sense, all of us are born with our roots dipped into a certain amount of truth about God. We have everything we need to believe that God exists. However, there's not enough information within creation for man to have living faith, specifically saving faith. It takes what we call special revelation, and that revelation only comes through God's word. It's not something you're going to feel, dream about, or see in creation. In the Bible, we learn about the specifics of God, sin, Christ's substitutionary atonement, salvation, sanctification, body life, and so on. 
So the more of God's truth we know, the more nutrient-filled, water-filled dirt we have around our roots, the better. Now, hopefully we can see that even though knowledge isn't the same as belief, or even the thing that creates belief, it is a prerequisite to belief. This is even true for false religions. Muhammad had to dream up Allah before he could believe he existed. The same goes for the false god of the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, and even the false views of God that Christians often have. That's right, Christians do this as well. Anytime we believe something about God that's not true, we're creating a false God in our mind. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I believe that God is okay with homosexuals if they, quote, truly love each other. Now, I could never come to that conclusion by reading the Bible. Uh, unless I thought it up or had someone else tell me about it, I would never believe that about God. The point is, I have to have the knowledge before I can believe it. Now, imagine your tree and your fellow disciples' trees. They may be your kids or your congregation or students or counselees or friends. Now, picture the tips of their roots just barely dipped into the general revelation of creation. What might they be able to believe about God? Now, imagine that there's actually a little bit more soil thrown down there. You all now have a solid layer of gospel. You have the basic seven flannel graph Bible stories that get recirculated every year, uh, you all have some token verses that you memorized in Kids Club, and you have the things authorities have told you about how the world works. If you believed all of that perfectly, what would you have? Well, based off an adequate understanding of the gospel, if you truly believed it, you'd be saved. You'd have saving faith. That's wonderful. And of course, you'd believe in some key truths about man and God uh, from the accounts of Daniel in the lion's den, Noah, the Christmas story, Easter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Joseph, and some important events in Jesus's life. You know, the main Sunday school lessons most kids learn. Belief in these would substantiate some basic trust in God's power, love, and sovereignty. And if you believed everything you've been told from a spiritual authority about how the world works and everything you've been told was biblical— uh, then you'd have a decent handle on the value of work, respect, obedience, relationships, and the like. And that's not too shabby, right? I'd agree that's a good start, but my friends, it is only a very small start. There's so much more that disciples of Christ must believe in order to grow and mature in their worship of God. Our sanctifying faith will need to mature much more if we're going to move away from self-worship to God-worship more consistently. Now, based off that little bit of dirt scattered around your counselee, student, child's roots, he won't be able to believe what God says about, for example, human sexuality, because it just simply wasn't included. He was never given that information from the scriptures, therefore he won't be able to believe the truth about them. Well, what about evangelism? What about the reality that true obedience must be grounded in God's glory? How are your kids to navigate being sinned against, managing their money to the glory of God, or fear of the unknown? Your church body won't be able to believe in the stunning intricacies of heaven or have vibrant relationships within the church because they don't know those things even exist. What about the importance of progressive sanctification to your counselees? You know, the reality that anything that's not growing is dead. How will your students be able to believe what God has to say about Satan and his continual effort to eat them alive? You see where I'm going? If we want to believe God more, and we want our disciples to believe God more, we need to learn about God. Of course, we understand that knowing God's truth won't guarantee our disciples believe, but we also know that they won't be able to believe if they don't first have the information. But is knowing enough? 
Hmm. Well, I don't want to muddy the waters at all, and I do plan to do a series about what I call the circle of worship. But suffice it to say, knowledge isn't the end all to end all. And and we know that. In order to trust God, we do need to know about him, but we also have to grow in our understanding of him. The more we know and understand about God, the more we can trust those truths about God. So let's use the remainder of our time today discussing the key categories of truth we and our disciples need to know, understand, and trust about God. Otherwise, we will never be able to mature and grow in our worship of him. Now, before we dive in, I just want you to know that today's episode notes will be very robust. I'm not only going to talk about the various categories of information in the Bible you and your disciples need to know, I'm going to provide a bunch of verses for the first seven of those categories. Listen, I can't be doing all the work, okay? I'm going to leave three to you. But I'll also give you some awesome resources that should be able to help you out with the remaining categories. The last thing before I unveil these categories, though, we need to understand that the Bible wasn't written just for adults. Okay, there's no kids version of the Bible. The entire Bible is not only free game for children and adults, but the whole Bible is an absolute necessity for everyone. So with that said, I'm going to share a couple of resources that make the info we're talking about today a little more acceptable to younger people. But honestly, I've always preferred to shoot pretty straight with my kiddos and my younger disciples and call them up to a higher plane of maturity. I definitely spend a ton of time defining terms and giving a minivan full of illustrations when I do and as I teach these deep truths but I don't shelter them from the big concepts of Scripture. And now, without any further ado, here are the things we need to know, understand, and trust about God. When you study the Bible, you'll find that it's not set up like a textbook with chapters dedicated to certain themes. And though some of us may have liked that format, God, in His infinite wisdom, knew that wasn't best. However, many, many, many wise and godly men have taken the opportunity to collect the truths of Scripture into study aids designed to assist us in the study of certain commands, principles, and the like. These books are absolutely not a substitute for the Bible, but they help us out by showing us all the verses that deal with a specific subject. This is very beneficial because it would take a long time for us to scour the whole of the Scriptures by ourselves to come to a cohesive understanding of even one concept in it. And though the practice would be awesomely valuable, there are a lot of other things in the day to which God has tasked the average Christian. We have to know, understand, and believe in those things too. So the study aids with which I'm suggesting we and our fellow disciples become very comfortable are called systematic theologies. Theology is the study of God, and whether you believe it or not, everyone is a theologian. We all believe something about God. The term systematic is exactly what it sounds like. These books categorize, they systematize the biblical teachings on various subjects into chapters for ease of study. The subjects you find in your average systematic theology are called doctrines. They're the foundation stones of God's revealed truth. Now again, please understand that it's extremely important for us to study and understand the grand unfolding of the scriptures as it progresses from book to book. However, when we and our disciples have questions, we need to be able to understand the broader truth instead of the simple Sunday school lessons. It's not that the simple Sunday school lessons aren't going to help us, it's that we need to deepen our understanding. Now, generally speaking, most systematic theology books contain 10 major doctrines. So what I want to do today is give you a big picture of the types of things we can learn from the Bible with the help of a systematic theology. And don't forget the main goal in all of this, okay? All followers of Christ should want to deepen our worship of the Lord. We should want to plunge our roots deeper and deeper into his truth so we can better worship him and stop worshiping ourselves. So what's the first doctrine with which most systematic theologies start? 
Well, as you might have guessed, the Bible is a great place to learn about God, and theologians refer to the study of God the Father as theology proper. Consider this. The Bible never attempts to prove God exists. It assumes that he exists. And we're going to learn about that just right off the bat in Genesis 1.1. Acts 17, 25-28 teaches us that God is knowable. Now, the Father also has these things called incommunicable attributes like self-existence, infinity, uh, perfection, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, and incomprehensibility. But he also has communicable attributes, which include holiness, truth, love, righteousness, faithfulness, mercy, and grace. And the Bible also teaches us that God's holiness governs his other attributes. Now, before I continue, if you download today's episode notes, you will find at least one passage cited for each of the claims about God that I just made. And I'm going to make a lot of other claims today, and there'll be tons of resources for you. But here's the thing. We and our disciples need to believe that God is self-existent. He's the only being in the entire universe that doesn't need anything. It's actually really important for us to understand that God doesn't need us. Instead, it's because of his communicable attribute of love that he created us, sustains us, and desires to have a relationship with us. Now, we can't take the time to discuss even one of these elements in any kind of depth. As Friedrich Lehman wrote, quote, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. But please note four important things about every truth we are going to discuss today. Number one, you and your fellow disciples absolutely need to know these truths. Two, we also need to continually grow in our understanding of these truths. Three, but we also need to trust these truths. Knowing and understanding aren't good enough if we're not going to live it out in our lives. And four, on the other hand, ignorance of and disbelief in these truths is at the foundation of every sin, heresy, act of rebellion, and obviously self-worship. Now let's move on to Christology, which, of course, you can all guess is about Jesus. Now, there are numerous scriptures that teach us that he is fully God. And of course, this is the last time I'll remind you that today's episode notes and transcript will have a ton of Bible references for you. But Jesus is also fully human. Now, that may seem to be a hard concept to communicate to a child in particular. I mean, it's hard for adults, but the Bible teaches it. So if we are to be faithful stewards of God's word and the younger generation, we need to explain it to them. The Bible also teaches us that Christ appeased God's wrath against sinners who believe on him by dying on the cross, and that he rose from the dead and conquered death and hell. But we can't stop there. We also need to have a right understanding about the Holy Spirit. The study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. First, it's vital to acknowledge that he is fully God. All right, that's super important. And since the Holy Spirit himself is God, he possesses all the essential characteristics of personality, such as life, intelligence, freedom, emotion, self-consciousness, and purpose. And therefore, he must be a person, not a force, energy, or abstract power. It's also vital for us to know, understand, and trust that the Holy Spirit operates in the world today by restraining sin and enabling the positive accomplishment of civic righteousness and good among all men, which we call common grace convicting men of sin, judgment, and righteousness by the word of God, and regenerating those who believe. Also, if you and your fellow disciples are saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit himself. Do you all understand what that means for your life and godliness? 
Now, too often, I believe the ministry of the Holy Spirit is either completely ignored or overemphasized to the detriment of a balanced view of God. Therefore, we have to know, understand, and believe what the Bible says about him. Now, as we move past the ologies, which teach about God, we encounter another infinitely important study called Bibliology. Do you and your counselees, students, children, and friends know that every word of Scripture is perfectly inspired? Do you believe that inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit by which the writers were divinely supervised in their production of Scripture, and by whom they were restrained from error, guided in their choice of words, and given divine trustworthiness while remaining consistent with the different personalities and styles of the writers? Do they know the Bible is a clear, finished, and complete revelation entirely sufficient for its divinely intended purpose to instruct the believer in all matters regarding the faith, godliness, and spiritual welfare? Ignorance or disbelief in the doctrine of the Bible will completely undermine your ability to believe anything else about God. In fact, if the people God has entrusted to your care believe that even one word in the Bible is inaccurate or imperfect, there's absolutely no reason to trust any of it. How can I believe any of it if it's possible that any of it could be wrong? Now, there are also three doctrines that apply to mankind specifically. Anthropology teaches us about ourselves. Man's composition consists of a unity of both material and an immaterial part. This is important to know and believe when it comes to death and eternity. Adam's disobedience in the garden brought spiritual, physical, and subsequently eternal death upon himself and the entire human race. Because of that, all men are sinners by state, disposition, and choice. Therefore, men are alienated from God, spiritually dead, and under the penalty of eternal condemnation. And speaking of sin, we call the study of sin harmatiology. And as we study it with our fellow disciples, and we must study it with them, we learn that sin is any lack of conformity to the moral law and character of God, either an act, a disposition, or state. Sin is any being, action, or disposition that is unlike God, and the commission of sin deserves eternal death and hell. Now, let me pause here to say that children in particular can understand this, and they must understand it. I keep going back to kids because oftentimes we excuse the fact that we're not teaching them deep truths about the scriptures because they quote-unquote can't handle it. But if they don't know about sin and hell and judgment, they won't be able to believe God's truth about it. Of course, a study of man and sin must inexorably lead to the study of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Do you and your fellow disciples understand that salvation is holy of grace, a gift of God, and cannot be merited by any virtue or work of man? They must believe that the gift of salvation must be personally accepted through repentant faith, which is also a gift from God, and that's the only way a human can have a relationship with God, both temporally and eternally. And though time has already failed us, I must mention the glorious truths of ecclesiology, the study of the church, eschatology, the doctrine of the future events, and angelology, the study of angelic beings, both good and demonic. To be able to believe any of these truths, we must start by knowing them and deepening our understanding of them. And to know them, we must study God's Word. Every word we read in the Bible tells us something new about our God, from the historical account of creation, through the genealogies, into the church letters, and all the way to the new heaven and earth. The entire scripture is the revelation of God. Now, if you want your counselees, students, friends, congregation, and children to know and believe God better and therefore worship Him better, you need to guide them in reading and understanding the Bible. No one can believe what they do not know. Now, to this point, Romans 10.14 asks these probing questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is not an admonition for you to task your pastor with the sole responsibility of instructing your disciples in spiritual things. This is a call for us all to preach the truth of God's beautiful word to the people in our lives. Now, before I finish up today, I'd like to point you to some resources that will help you in the task of exposing the younger disciples in your life to the study of God. Now, even if you don't have kids in your life, stick around for my closing comments afterward. If there are children in your life and you want to disciple them for Christ, of course, you can totally pick up a systematic theology textbook and start there. Okay, that's not a big deal. It may be a little heady for the children. And you'll have to do a lot of explaining, but obviously it'll be awesome for you. So if you're going to go that route, either for you or for the younger children, I recommend the theology books written by John MacArthur, uh, Louis Burkhoff, John Frame, Millard Erickson, Charles Ryrie, and Paul Enns. I'll include this list in today's episode notes. There are others as well, but you absolutely must be very picky about this. The Bible is perfect, but people have said many false things about it. You need a systematic theology that's not going to lie to you about what the Bible says. But I also want to make you aware of some amazing resources to teach the deep truths of God to little minds. Natasha Crane wrote a book called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, 40 Conversations to Help Them Build a Lasting Faith. I highly suggest you start there. There's so much fodder for amazing conversations with the kids in your life just in that one book. Of course, the book isn't exhaustive on any and every topic, which is why she wrote Talking With Your Kids About God and Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. There's also this great book called The Ology. My kids and I enjoyed working through that book. Now, again, I understand I've taken a lot of your time and I need to wrap up, so let me direct you to a link in the description. It's called Apologetic Parenting, and whether you're parenting these kids or not, it will take you to truthloveparent.com's parenting books resource page. There you'll be able to see all of the children's systematic theology books that we endorse. Now, in conclusion of our Grow Your Worship series, I want to encourage you to take this seriously. You are a sinner. You don't perfectly worship God every moment of every day the way you should. In order to grow in your worship of God, you need to stop worshiping self in your actions, words, and in the interpretation of your feelings. You also need to stop worshiping self with your thoughts and desires. And as we learned, that means you need to address your beliefs. Instead of calling God a liar and believing lies, you need to trust God and believe what he says about himself, his word, and yourself. But in order to do that, you absolutely need to expose your roots to more and more truth about God. You will never be able to believe what you don't know. That means that in order to worship God better, you need to believe him more. But that means you need to know more about him and understand more about him so that you can believe more about him. This will require intense study, my friends. We can dedicate our entire lives to the study of God and never learn everything about him. But everything new we learn and understand is something we can choose to trust and as we have faith in it, it will impact our desires and our fruit, and we will end up worshiping God more and self less. I pray this series has been absolutely invaluable to you. I hope you'll revisit it from time to time, and I really hope you'll share it with your fellow disciples. Every time I teach it, I grow. And if the Truth Love Counselors can ever be of any service to you as you seek to better know, understand, and trust God, please do not hesitate to contact them at counselor at truthloveparent.com or call 828-423-0894. Listen, I love you guys, and I look forward to continuing our ongoing discussion about how we can celebrate God all year long. To that end, on our next episode, we'll be discussing what it looks like to worship God in December, and I'll see you then. 
If you want to know God better, celebrate Him more, and help the ones you love to do the same, subscribe to this podcast and visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this dynamic discipleship resource. And remember, the Celebration of God is a listener-supported ministry.